in thinking about this chapter, chapter 25, just after we've witnessed the sovereign grace of God to Israel in chapters 22, 23, and 24, when Balaam was hired by a king of Moab by the name of Balak to curse the people of God, we find that God was so involved in that, unbeknownst to even Israel, he was so involved in this that he would not permit this false prophet, Balaam, to curse the people of God. And I was thinking about that very thing, and since the word of God is absolutely true, we must conclude that all the folks we ever might have thought were good were enemies of God at one time. No one that has ever been born has not been an enemy of God. And it takes God to bring us peace, to be at peace. When I think of Seth, he was the, the young man that was born to, uh, to Adam and Eve after Abel was killed and the brother took off to the wilderness even Seth, and we could follow Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses, Caleb and Joshua, David, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of those that we ever read about and think, my, if it wouldn't be, wouldn't it be nice if I could be like that person or like Saul of Tarsus who became Paul? Wow, what a preacher of the gospel. He was, as all are, an enemy of the gospel and an enemy of Christ by nature. And what kind of people did God have to deal with since the fall? Everybody is, fell in Adam, all died in Adam. He's dealing with people that are contrary to him, that are enmity against him, and we just thank God that he would do anything for anybody that would bring them out of that condition. In Psm fourteen and verse uh, two and three, it says, "God looked down from heaven to see if there were any that did seek after him, that would follow him, that would come and be on good terms." And it says, "He found none." That same thing is brought out in the book of Romans chapter three. He found none. There was nobody. So when we get to looking at chapter 25 and find out all the nonsense that's going on in Israel, it shouldn't be a shock to us, except for the grace of God, there go I. So if you turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verse 16, for one verse of scripture, as we think about this Balaam that has been there to trouble Israel and to bring out a curse upon Israel. It's mentioned here in Numbers chapter 31 verse 16. Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16. The scriptures share this. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now it appears that the king of Moab, on the instructions of Balaam, went back to Moab, and he talked to the ladies and said, go over there and tr 
be nice to the men of Israel. And that's what we're going to fall into in here in just a moment. We're going to see that God used this man and God would not allow him to curse Israel. We find him mentioned three times in the New Testament. There in Second Peter says he was following the, there were those that were following the way of Balaam who loved wages of unrighteousness. In Jude, verse 11, ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak and to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So, as we come to the book of Numbers chapter 25, we find that we should not expect anything different because they're just like we are. They're just like we are, and many of them have no knowledge of the gospel whatsoever. They're just like we were if we know Christ. They're just like we are if we don't. So Numbers chapter 25 and verse 1, we read these things that are brought out in the scriptures about what's going on among the children of Israel while God is over there taking care of them and he's also watching over them. You know, the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is in active control of all things and he is there and here is the record. It says, Israel abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods and the people did eat and bow down to their gods and Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of these men that have joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, and the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who are weeping before the door of the tabernacle of congregation. We're going to stop there today because we find a terrible situation going on in Israel. We find that God is only has ever dealt with people that have fallen in Adam and they have the same nature as Adam. They've dead in trespasses and sin with one hand and they are enmity with God in the other hand. We will not have this man rule over us. Well, we find that as Balaam intended to weaken Israel by the rendering them harmless and seducing them, we find that there is a trait that is brought out here in this chapter of, his, of the book. Verse 3, it tells us, Israel joined himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. How many people were changed by the anger of the Lord? I find no record here that anybody was changed by the anger of the Lord. And in verse 4, it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Take the heads of the people that were leading this insurrection against God. Slay them. But I find nobody was ever changed by slaying those who were guilty. And we read here in verse 5, it says, And Moses said unto the judges, Slay ye every one of the men that were joined to Baal Peor. And we find in verse 9, if we drop down or I didn't read it, but it tells us in verse 9, there were 24,000 people slain as a result of this insurrection against the thrice holy God. They would bring these gods into Israel. Well, there is a situation here that we find that all men are sinners, 
and sinners by nature and sinners by practice and sinners by choice. But here we find in the midst of them is a man by the name of Moses. What's the difference with Moses? And then we're going to find in there that there is one of the uh, grandsons, I believe, of Aaron that he stops the plague. What's the difference with him? With Joshua and Caleb, what's the difference with them? Why did they have a different vote than the other ten? What's the difference with them? How many of these sinners knew that they were sinners? Well, you know, I've come to the conclusion not very many of them knew they were sinners. When we went through the book of Leviticus, there are five or six different sacrifices that sinners could get, be given to demonstrate that they have a God Almighty that has saved them from their sins and that this is a demonstration of their relationship with God. I need a mediator. I need a sacrifice. There was even a sacrifice if you realized that you had sinned unknowingly or unwittingly. I've come to the conclusion in reading all the rest of the Bible that there were not very many people that brought those sacrifices because there were not very many sinners in Israel, just as in the days of the Lord Jesus. We heard there this morning as read there in the book of Luke that there was a, a, a publican and a sinner and compared the notes between the two and we have the group of people in Israel that knew nothing about the gospel and we have the group in Israel that knew something about the gospel and what is the difference? Well, what was revealed to that publican? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the difference. God reveals that truth to his people that we are sinners. You know, one person said, a sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Spirit hath made him thus. That's put into one of the hymns we have in our green book. Turn with me, if you would, as we think about this awful condition going on in Israel as God has just demonstrated to us is protecting his people by keeping Balaam from speaking evil against them and only speaking good. He took the mouth of a lost man and pronounced good upon the people of Israel, blessings upon them. In the book of the Psalm, Psalm 51, we run into a fellow that has committed a great crime against God, against himself, against his friends, and against the nation of Israel. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 51. Now, in this Psalm, we find some important things that God's people have relevancy to. How God's people have understanding of. How God's people, because they are given a demonstration in the new birth that they are sinners and that they do need someone to stand in their place. God only saves sinners. He came not to save the unrighteous, or the righteous, but he came to save those who are lost. That's his mission, and that's what he's going to do. In Psalm 51, verse 1, the scriptures share this, as the psalmist is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is David, and a prophet came to him. A minister of the gospel came to him. Someone who loved him came to him. A lover of souls came to him and said, David, you are the man. You have committed great crime against the thrice holy God. And David says here, 
Then Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. One thing David shares with us here in this passage of Scripture, that he was over-blaming someone else for the condition. He was the culprit. He's the one that was a sinner before God. Just as we read about that publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He realized he was the sinner before God. And in verse 4 it says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now there was a lot of people that were sinners in that camp of Israel. We probably have three to six million people there. And many of them are got involved with this, this uh, problem that came in. These women were brought over there. And it, the, their religion and their uh, acts were so contrary to God's law. But they carried off much of Israel and 24,000 of them God slew plus all the heads of the people. And David says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He takes us back to the core of the problem. He takes us back as, as God did there in Psalm 14. Nobody's looking after God. All have gone out of the way. Nobody in Adam's children have ever sought after God. Why do people seek after God? Because God brings them to that point. He's the one. And then he says, let's purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Where do we find hyssop? We find hyssop there at the Passover time. It's what the blood was used to, to spatter the blood on the doorpost. He said, I need the blood of Christ. I need his blood to be on my, uh, for me. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide my face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew the right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Here as we read these things, we find that in verse 3 that David said, I acknowledge my transgressions. I'm not going to blame anybody else for this. And it tells us as we travel over to Psalm 32, back up to Psalm 32, we find much of the same words here as again brought out by David. But this is the confession of God's people. In Psalm 32, verse 1, it tells us here, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We have a whole throng of people over there in Israel that don't know the problem. We have a whole throng of people over there that don't know the condition that they're in. And they're, they're doing what comes natural, and that is to sin against God. It is a serious crime against God to sin against Him. It is a damnable crime. God has every right in this world to damn everybody that has ever sinned against Him. And yet we find that God in his good providence and his love for a people that he chose before the foundation of the world says, I will make accommodations for them. I will not just forgive their sins or set them aside. They must be paid for. He can be just and justifier. He can be just in what he does and justifier of the 
of the law of God. And it goes on, blessed is the man, verse 2, of whom God and the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose sins there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day. For the night and the day and the night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summer, Selah. Verse 5, and I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. What is it to be a sinner? A sinner that God has made a sinner is a sacred thing. It is to acknowledge my sin unto, the, unto thee, and he will put our iniquity away. I must say to, to me, and I have people come to me, been a long time, don't bring your sins to me. I don't have any nail prints in my hands. Take them to the Lord. He's the one that can do something about it. Now, there's only one exception to that rule. If you have sinned against your brother or sister, it is time to go to them. That's your business, to take it to them. But all the rest, take it to the Lord. He meets his people alone. He's never asked any preacher to become somebody where sin is confessed. He's never asked any missionary to do that. He's never asked anybody to be the one that hears all the problems. He has addressed God Almighty. Bring it to him. Now we're going to find out people in the Old Testament as David brought their problems to God. How did they know they had a problem? It was revealed unto them that they had a problem. That they were children of Adam. They were sinners by nature, sinners by practice, and sinners by choice. And he and he alone can acquaint us with that fact. We can be those who have done things wrong. We read about Judas. It says Judas repented. You know, I've had people say, well, he must have been saved. That's not what that word means. You know what Judas did? He was sorry he got caught, and that was it. He never acknowledged that he was a sinner. Repentance so often is just that human effort to do away with something that we've done. Turn with me if you would. There is a very clear plan in Scripture on how God deals with this. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, and we find out that God has just laid it out. It is not a formula. This is just what God does. When I had made a profession of faith, it was nothing but a formula. If you do this and God does this, then it's going to be okay, and you made your profession of faith. Well, you find out that all that stuff is not in accordance with the Word of God. You will not find it in the Bible. You will not find that system that is so prevalent in the religious world today among good Christian people, if you would. Well, we find that the Bible is so clear. And here in the book of, of Ezekiel chapter 36, I want to begin reading with verse 22. Chapter 36 of the book of Ezekiel. Here is how those people in the days of Numbers chapter 25, if God saved any of them, this is how it had to happen. If he saved Moses, this is how it happened. If he saved Joshua and Caleb, this is how it had to happen. And all the others in the line that we read about that were faithful, Abraham, he was a worshiper of other gods and held his fist to God and said, I will not have you rule over me. 
But God came to him in glory. And here in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning with verse 22, we have this, which is what God does. He says, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. Who's going to get the glory and salvation? Almighty God. It will not be our glory. We will be given glory. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. What does God save his people for? For his name's sake. It is he that's been offended. It is he that has sin, had sin cast against him. And it is he that has the solution for it. And when it takes place, we realize this is for the glory of God. Which ye have profaned among the heathen, whether ye went... And I will sanctify my great name. I want to set aside my name. How does he do that? When he reveals to his people, I had you in mind before the foundation of the world. I had your name written down in the Lamb's book of life. I had a covenant made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that is going to save my people from their sins. I have a lamb slain. What is this? I'll sanctify my great name and I will reveal this to my people that this, their salvation is caused by God and for no other reason. It was not because of repentance. It was not of crying a lot. It was not of praying a lot. It was not signing a card. It was not going forward. It was not coming to a bench. It is because God will be glorified in it. I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall sanctify in you before their eyes. What kind of activity did the people of God have before God, before God saves them? They act just like the heathen. They are angry with God. They're enmity against God. They have no interest in God. He looked down upon all men. And even those he has chosen before the foundation of the world, and there's not one whit in them that would encourage him to do anything for them, it is all because of grace. Verse 24, for I will take you from among the heathen. He's going to have to draw us out of the position that we're in. There will be nothing on our part. We don't grab a line and pull ourselves out of the muck and mire. He lifts us out of a horrible pit. He's the one that is active in the salvation of his people. And I will take you from among the heathen, verse 24, and gather you out of all countries, out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. I'll bring my people where I place them and bring you into your own land, and I'll sprinkle clean water upon you. There's going to have to be clean water. This gospel message that God has is clean to the core because it is the message of Christ and nothing else. Nothing is added and nothing is taken away. We find it is clean water. It doesn't have any impurities in it. It is absolutely clean. It's the word of God. It's the truth of the gospel. It is the gospel that God gave from the very beginning mixed with nothing and added to nothing. From your, I'll clean you with water. From your filthiness and from your idols will I cleanse you. Oh my goodness, you telling me that God only saves what? Filthy and idolatrous? Yes, that's all he saves. Sinners is all he saves. No one else. He came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And then he says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit. You know, there's some things that we find as we study the word of God. And number one, God is 
We, we need someone to deal with our sin. We find that out. Someone has to deal with it. I can't. And we also find out that we need a spiritual life. By nature, we're dead in trespasses and sin, and without a spiritual life granted to us in the new birth, we'll never see God. And another thing that we absolutely need is we must have perfect righteousness. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We must have perfect righteousness. We must have sin dealt with. We must have a new heart. And then we find out that we must have his righteousness. It tells us here, a new heart also will I give you. That's something we cannot do. We can't create a new heart. We can't create a heart that loves God. We can't create a heart that will put God first and us second. We're always the other way around. Thank God that I'm not like other men. My, that sounds, that's a religious man talking. That's a Baptist. That's a Methodist. That's a Mormon. That's a, that's a Jehovah's Witness. That's all the religions of the world. Mohammedan, whatever you want to go, wherever it is, all the same. I thank God I'm not like other folks. And then by the grace of God, you hear a cry from one man and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went down to his house justified. How did he get justification? God gave it to him. He's the only one that can justify. I'll put my spirit within you, verse 27, and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. We find out that the only way we can keep what God has commanded us to keep is in Christ Jesus the Lord. He fulfilled the law. He's kept it. And we are in him. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And ye shall be my people and I'll be your God. What's the land that he gave us? That is, that is the covenant of grace. Glorified. And then he says, I will also save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and increase it and lay no famine upon you and I'll multiply the fruit of the tree. How God works in his people to have fruits of righteousness. We find we are by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works never paid for anything. Good works are a result of activity of Almighty God. I will multiply. I will receive. Uh, you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Verse 31. Then shall ye remember. It is now we can see ourselves as God writes about us. He's done all the work. One preacher asks, what is it that we bring to the table? Verse 31, our sin, our very nature. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your own your iniquities and for your abominations. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, David said it, and every believer has said much the same way. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. I confess my sins. I, I come as a sinner. I know that God saves sinners, and I'm thankful for that because without it, I'd not be saved. You know, when we think about confessing sin 
acknowledging God is right on the matter, taking God's side against ourselves. Our nature says, I'm okay. I've got a few bad things in there, but I'm okay. I've got so many more good things that will outweigh my bad things. I'll be okay. And God says, no, you won't. You are not. You are not okay. From the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, you are wrong. There's (coughs) sores and all kinds of indignities that are there by nature. Well, when it comes to the confession of sin, we find out that when we do that, when we acknowledge our sin, when we as the publican say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, you know what that does? First of all, it honors God's law. Now, the law has never been something to to cause people to be saved by. Keeping the law will not save anybody. Nobody's saved by keeping the law. The Lord fulfilled the law on our behalf. But when we confess that we are what the Bible says we are, we're honoring his law and we are saying, I have broken them all. Not one have I kept. Oh, to say, how are you doing with the Ten Commandments? Well, I got most of them down. I'm working on a couple of them. That's a lie because we cannot keep any of them. But when we come before God, as he has revealed to us our very nature, we are honoring what God said in the word of God about his word. It is right. He has the right to have this standard. And we cannot keep it. Keeping the law is impossible. Confessing this as David did. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. You know, we are admitting that God is just. And his justice is right. That he had the right to condemn everybody in the fall to an everlasting pit. That what he has to say about those on the left hand side is absolutely right. We cannot argue against it. We cannot kick against it. We must admit if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be there. God's confession is justice to damn me. You know, I've visited with a lot of people in religion, I visited with a lot of people, and very, very, very few people, including myself, ever did anything bad enough to go to hell. I can understand why there's a religious group that's got a whole doctrine that's unscriptural by nature, unscriptural by practice, but there's a place that you can go to and get cleaned up a little bit. Do you know that there are even some that believe that there's going to be enough time spent in hell you can come out? Not in the word of God, it's not. It is justice served. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. But confession of sin is an admission that God is right to do what he does. He has every right to sink me to the devil's hell. He is God, I have sinned against him, and he has the right to do that. But thanks be unto God for grace. He has lifted me out of that pit and out of that condemnation. We find out that God, we hated him with every fiber of our being, but he never hated his people. He never had had a wrong thought towards them. He said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And from the very beginning, we hated God, enmity with him. Well, we're thankful that God was working on our part because we'd not have anything. Confession of sin recognizes that God is omniscient. You know what? He knew all about it. 
Who knew about David's sin with Bathsheba? Well, he took Bathsheba's husband and put her finally on the front of the line and had him killed. Tried to evaporate all of the consequences and everything about what was going on. We find out that God, when we come before him saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, we are agreeing that he knew all about it from the beginning. He knew that we were sinners. In fact, Christ died for sinners. He loved us even while we were yet sinners. This is God's activity, uh, active grace on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Would you turn there with me? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. We find out in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, there's nothing goes on that he does not know of. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Here's the one we have to deal with. Here's the one with whom we have to do. This is him. It tells us here in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. He knows it all. He knows the fish that brought the gold. He knew the fish that he created to swallow Jonah. He knew all about that. And in fact, he goes on to say, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the very thoughts of our heart. He knows everything about us and everything about everybody and everything about everybody that's ever lived. And so when we come, as David did, says, I acknowledge my sin. We're saying, God, you knew all about it all along. You're omniscient. Besides that, you're omnipotent. Besides that, you're omnipresent. You have all the wonderful characters of an almighty God. You are the Savior. No one, nothing else could do what was necessary to save his people from their sin, but a great God. He has a great bunch of sinners that are great sinners, so we need a great God. Confession as David did, and as we're going to find a few of the people in Israel did. Confession against thee and thee only have I sinned. You know, when we do that, we are exalting the very mercy of God. What did that publican say? God be merciful. God be merciful. Oh, I need your mercy. Mercy cannot be demanded, but it can be pled. Boy, when we go into a courtroom, I plead the mercy of the judge. You cannot demand it. Mercy is not demanded. Mercy is given by God. And this mercy, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful. So when we do as David did, when people throughout the scriptures we find, and those that he saves even today, what does God do with those he has caused to know their sin? He does show them mercy. What God does with those who come like David and said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. You know, it works. Godly sorrow. Not, I'm sorry I got caught. My mother and my dad both used to wear out my backside because I got caught doing something. And I, I have to admit that I didn't get caught for near all I did. They couldn't catch it all. You got four or five in the household and you got one of them actively involved in causing hate and discontent. Parents can't catch it all. 
But when they did, they actively got involved. Well, with God, it's more than just having a sorrow about being sorrowful. It is a godly sorrow that worketh repentance. You know, repentance is a gift of God. Uh, Repentance really means a change of mind. A change of mind about God. I will not have you rule over me till please take over. Sorrow that had God for its author. It did not arise from power of free will, nor from the dictates of natural conscience, nor from the work of the law on our hearts, or from the fear of hell and damnation, but it springs from the free grace of God. Godly sorrow works from the free grace of God. It's not how bad we feel towards the situation. It's godly sorrow that God works. You know, God, as we confess our sin, we find out that we're in union with Christ. What's that mean? You know, in the book of Isaiah 53, it says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. It's hard to find transgressors. It's hard to find sinners. They are a sacred thing because the Holy Spirit hath made them thus. But when they are, as David shares with us, with regard to his sin against thee and thee only have I sinned, I acknowledge my sin, God. He didn't take it to the priest. He took it to God. Thank God it was written down. We can read it and say, Oh, I know how I felt. I know. Why? Confession of sin puts us in union with Christ. He was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors have intercession made for them. And it gives us that union. If we're not a sinner, we're not with Christ. If we're not a sinner, he didn't die for us. If we're not a sinner, he has no place for us. If we're not a sinner, we're on the left-hand side. And he says, depart from me. Oh, I've done many mighty works in thy name. I've even preached in your name. I've went door to door in your name. I've passed out boxes of food in your name. I've done the feeding of people in your name. He says, that doesn't count one whit. You have no knowledge of Christ. You have not acknowledged him. And so we find there's no transgressions. He is just. It tells us that in Mark chapter 15, and they crucified two thieves, the one on the right hand and the one on the left. Why did they do that? Because he's demonstrating his union with sinners. You know, on one side there's a Jacob and on the other side there's an Esau. The one on the Right-hand side, God be merciful to me. When you enter into your kingdom, remember me. And the other guy says, if you be Christ, take us down from this place. That one man said, we get justly what we deserve. We're getting exactly what we deserve. This is what we deserve. And the other guy, he just went out of this life, a vessel of dishonor from the same lump. And the scripture was fulfilled, 
which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For when we were yet without strength, Christ, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, it's hard to find ungodly people. It's hard to find sinners. I remember hearing about a preacher that went into a hospital. And he went into this room. Any sinners in here? Nobody said a word. Go to the next room. Any sinners in here? No, not a word. Went to another room. Finally, he went into a room and says, there are any sinners in here? One man said, yes, I am. I am a saved sinner by the grace of God. You know, that's what God calls us sinners. In the, turn with me, if you would, to, again, back to the book of the Psalms. This is the people that God's dealing with there in Numbers chapter 25. A whole bunch of people that without God, without Christ, without hope in the world, they're not sinners. Oh, everything's going on fine. There are just a few that know anything about their place before Almighty God. And here in the book of the Psalms again, Psalm 32. Let's go back there to the book of the Psalms. Psalm 32. Psalm 32 and verse 2. What do we read here? Psalm 32 and verse 2. Blessed. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. There's only one that can deal with us in such a way that he does not impute our sin against us, and in whose spirit there is no guile. There, there's, that word guile means deceit or treachery or sneakiness. Sneakiness. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, uh, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And what did that do for David? Oh, we just read those things. Honors God's law. God is just. He had every right to judge me. But he gave me grace. It recognizes God's omniscience. He knew all about me to begin with. I didn't hide anything anyway. Exalts, oh, I don't know how many times I failed to let my parents know all the things were going on. Well, God knew it all along. Confession of sin exalts God's mercy. It works godly sorrow. It puts us in union with Christ. He loves sinners. Brother Mike, Brother Nathan. <laughs>